Section number 12 of Marvels of Scientific Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Marvels of Scientific Invention by Thomas W. Corbin the most striking invention of recent times part one probably no invention has made such a sensation during recent years as wireless telegraphy and since it is the direct outcome of the most abstruse purely scientific investigations there could be no more appropriate subject for a place in this book for many years there has been a belief in the existence of a mysterious something to which has been given the name of the ether totally different it should be noted from the chemical of the same name it is entirely a creature of the intellect none of our senses give us the slightest direct indication of its existence no one has either seen felt heard smelt or tasted it yet we feel that it must exist for the simple reason that some things which our senses do tell us are utterly inexplicable without it it was originally thought of in connection with light standing at night upon the top of a hill we see the lights of a town a mile away how is it that those distant gas or electric lamps affect our eyes they are a mile away and the idea that one object can affect another at a distance is one which the human mind refuses to accept we feel compelled to believe that there is something in contact with the source of light which is affected first and through which the disturbance whatever it may be is conveyed to our eyes with which it must also be in contact we feel that there must be a something stretching from our eyes to the distant objects by which the light is carried of course the air fills the space referred to but that cannot be the carrier of light for if we look through a glass vessel from which the air has been exhausted we see distant objects undimmed we also have good reason to believe that the air belongs specially to our globe and does not extend upwards for more than a few miles consequently it cannot be air which brings sunlight and starlight we are forced to fall back therefore upon the belief in something of which we have no other knowledge which must fill all the vacant spaces in the whole universe passing even between the particles of which ordinary matter is composed reaching as far as the remotest star able to penetrate everything and consequently not excludable from the most perfect vacuum it is something so different from anything of which we have any direct knowledge that one is tempted sometimes to doubt whether there must not be some other explanation of light in order to transmit light at the speed at which we find it does in fact travel the ether must 
be more rigid than the hardest substance we know of many many thousand times more rigid indeed yet it seems to offer no resistance to the passage of the planets through it still there is no other alternative so far as men can conceive and we are compelled therefore to believe in the existence of the ether the first things discovered by the telescope were the larger satellites of jupiter with that precision for which astronomers are noted they soon drew up timetables showing not only the past movements of these bodies but also their future ones they were soon puzzled however by the obvious fact that the moons of jupiter were not working according to schedule to use a railway expression they got later and later for a time then gradually quickened up until they got too fast then they slowed down again this repeated itself and is going on still with this difference however that the cause has been discovered and the schedules amended accordingly the solution of this puzzle was that when the earth and the great planet are at the same side of the sun they are some one hundred and eighty six millions of miles nearer together than when they are on opposite sides of the sun the evolutions of the satellites are quite regular according to the astronomers calculations but they seem to the earthly astronomers to vary because of the time which light took to traverse that one hundred and eighty six millions of miles when the two bodies were nearest together the occurrences seemed to happen about one thousand seconds sixteen minutes earlier than when they were farthest apart consequently it became evident that light took one thousand seconds to travel one hundred and eighty six million miles or that in other words it moved at the prodigious speed of one hundred and eighty six thousand miles per second that discovery was of course many years ago but experiments since have proved the figure mentioned to be about right it put beyond question the fact that the action of a distant light upon the eye was not an action at distance for such action were it possible would take effect at once seeing that light passed from the distant satellites at a definite velocity and took a certain time to reach us it was evident that it was during that time passing through a medium of some sort and that medium must be the ether for no alternative explanation will suffice so it became recognized that light really consists of waves or undulations of some sort in the ether that a distant luminous body set these waves going that they traveled with a definite velocity and then striking our eyes produced a sensation known as light many things were found out about light in the years which followed the discovery of its velocity the lengths of the waves were ascertained that is to say the distance from the crest of one to the crest of the next the different lengths were sorted out and found to give rise to different colors while longer waves 
which produced no sensation of light were found to carry heat thereby explaining how the heat reaches us from a distant fire or from the sun of the actual nature of the waves however little was known although there was a vague idea that they were connected in some way with electricity at which point in the story there comes in the famous name of james clerk maxwell a professor of cambridge university who in eighteen sixty four produced before the royal society the explanation of the nature of the waves and their connection with electricity and magnetism that in itself was a wonderful achievement but far more wonderful still is the fact that he truly predicted the existence of longer waves than any then known which no one knew how to cause or how to detect if caused that prediction has since been fulfilled the long waves have been found we know how to make them and how to perceive their presence they are the messengers which carry our wireless messages the discovery of these at that time unknown waves on paper by simply calculating and reasoning about them is more marvelous even than the feat of adams and the verrier in discovering a planet on paper before anyone had seen it it established maxwell among the heroes of science for all time a magnet acts upon a piece of iron some distance away the pole must be transmitted through some kind of ether a current of electricity behaves in the same way acting precisely as a magnet with power to affect things at a distance again an ether is necessary a dynamo works by moving a magnet past a wire which it does not touch therefore generating current in it there again an ether is necessary to transmit the effect from the one to the other taking then the known magnetic effects of an electric current and the electrifying effects of magnets he was able to show that the same ether accounted for all and for the transmission of light as well that in fact there was but one ether which performed all these various duties he proved from the known facts about electricity and magnetism that waves such as he imagined would in fact move with the speed of light and once knowing the nature of the waves he asserted that in all probability there were others of which men had then no practical knowledge maxwell's theory soon set experimenters searching for the means of producing the long waves which he had predicted would be found several authorities had before then stated their belief that the current derived from a laden jar was not simply a flow in one direction they suggested and gave grounds for the belief that the current surged to and fro for some time before it settled down that it swung to and fro indeed like a pendulum 
there may be some of my readers who are unacquainted with this interesting piece of electrical apparatus the Leyden jar it is a convenient form of what is called an electrostatic condenser this is two conductors generally in the form of two plates with an insulator between them in the Leyden jar the insulator is a glass jar while the plates are coatings of tin foil one inside and the other outside on connecting one coating to one pole of a battery and the other to the other pole they become charged one positively and the other negatively one that is acquires an excess of electricity while the other becomes deficient to an exactly similar extent when the two are afterwards connected by a wire the surplus on one flashes through it to make good the deficiency on the other rushing first of all from positive coating to negative electrical inertia causes it to overshoot the mark and to recharge the jar with the charges reversed then current begins to flow back again doing the same several times over until at last equilibrium is established the power to absorb and hold a charge of electricity which is the characteristic of a condenser is called capacity what then is electrical inertia i have already referred to the effect which the creation of a magnetic field around a current has upon neighboring conductors it also has an effect upon itself as soon as the current begins to flow it builds up the magnetic field and in the process some of its energy is exhausted on the original current ceasing however the magnetic field collapses back on to the conductor once more and in so restores that energy this occurs whenever current flows but it is specially noticeable in long conductors like submarine cables in them the battery has to act for a considerable time before any current reaches the farther end it is in the meantime employed in building up the magnetic field around the wire then when the battery has ceased to act the current still comes flowing out at the farther end the magnetic field is giving back the energy expended upon it thus a current is reluctant to start flowing through a conductor and having started is disinclined to stop this is called inductance and it has exactly the same effect upon the current that inertia has upon a body what inertia is to a material body inductance is to an electric current and lastly the resistance which the conductor offers to the passage of the current is precisely analogous to the friction of the water in a pipe so we see the capacity of the two coatings of the jar and the inductance which occurs in the connecting wire cause the current to oscillate to and fro for a while when the jar is discharged which surging or oscillation is ultimately stopped by the resistance of the wire 
the two coatings and the wire form what is called an oscillatory circuit we can now resume our story after much experimenting hertz of Karlsruhe discovered the fact that when a discharge was taking place in an oscillatory circuit tiny sparks passed between the ends of a curved wire held some distance away his apparatus is illustrated in figures six and seven the former which is termed nowadays a hertz oscillator is simply two metal discs almost connected by a thick wire the wire is broken however at the center and the two halves terminate in two metal balls each ball is connected to one terminal of an induction coil now the current comes from an induction coil in a series of spurts it is not an alternating current exactly since every alternate current is so feeble as to be negligible but it is practically an intermittent current always in the same direction thus we may call one the positive end of the coil and the other the negative a short current comes along with every backward movement of the little vibrating arm which forms a part of the apparatus this breaking of the primary circuit may take place perhaps fifty times per second so that the intermittent secondary currents will succeed each other at intervals of a fiftieth of a second or even less the brain reels at the attempt to think of a fiftieth of a second but it is really quite a long interval as these things go and during that interval quite a lot happens for the current first of all all charges the two plates as a condenser when they are as full as they will hold the current overflows as it were across the gap between the two balls now an air gap a gap that is filled with air between two conductors is a very strong insulator but when current has once broken through it it becomes a fairly good conductor hence as soon as the first spark has passed between the two knobs the plates become connected almost as if a wire were passed from one to the other and there we have quite a good oscillatory circuit there is capacity at each end and a fairly long length of wire to provide the inductance consequently that breakdown of the insulation of the air in the spark gap is followed by electrical oscillations which take place with inconceivable rapidity yet because of the resistance of the spark gap which is considerable even after it has been broken through the oscillations do not continue for long they have died away long before the lapse of the fiftieth of a second when the next impulse comes along from the coil in the meantime the air gap regains its insulating properties and so on the arrival of the next impulse the whole thing occurs once more thus a little train of oscillations is produced for every impulse from the coil every train causes a corresponding disturbance in the ether and sends off a train of electromagnetic waves and these 
falling upon the distant wire generate it in a train similar to that which brought them into being these trains in hertz's simple apparatus manifested themselves in the form of minute sparks leaping across the small gap between the ends of the curved wire figure seven it was in eighteen eighty eight that hertz made this discovery of a way to detect long electric waves he subjected the matter to many more experiments and found that the waves have many points in common with light rays he found that they were reflected from certain surfaces just as light is reflected from the surface of a mirror he made prisms which were able to bend them as light waves are bent by prism of glass some things appeared to be transparent to them as clear glass is to light while others are opaque it does not follow that the same things which reflect light waves reflect electric waves and so on the latter can pass through a brick wall for example but the same divergence is to be observed between light and radiant heat of which the action of glass is a familiar example clear glass will let light through almost undimmed yet we use it for fire screens to shield us from too much radiant heat the important fact is that all three light radiant heat and hertzian waves in addition to traveling at the same speed are reflected absorbed or refracted according to precisely the same principles this is almost perfect testimony to their essential identity the difference between them as has been said already is the distance from crest to crest of the waves the wavelength that is and the reader will wonder by what manner of means this mysterious dimension can be ascertained in spite of its seeming mystery the method is very simple it is based upon the fact that two sets of similar waves traveling at the same speed in opposite directions interfere with one another in a peculiar way suppose that one set of waves travel along to a reflector and strike it vertically then another set will travel back from the reflector exactly similar to the first except that their direction will be opposite and the result will be that at certain intervals they will exactly neutralize each other so that at those points there will be no wave action appreciable at all those points where no action is to be perceived are called nodes and they are exactly half a wavelength apart this will be quite easily understood from the accompanying diagrams in each of these diagrams the set of waves marked a are supposed to be moving from left to right while those denoted by b are reflected back and are moving from right to left it will be noticed that each wavy line has a straight line drawn through it dividing it into alternate crests and hollows which line is known as the axis of the waves now notice that in figure eight there are points marked x where the a waves are just as much above 
the axis as the B waves are below it, and vice versa. Hence, at those points, the two sets of waves will neutralize each other. Now turn to the next figure, which, be it remembered, shows the same waves a moment later, when they have moved a little farther on in their respective journeys, and it will be seen that there, too, are places marked X, where the two sets of waves neutralize each other, and the same with the third diagram. And finally observe that the places marked X are always the same in all diagrams, that is to say, they are always the same distance from the line on the right-hand side, which denotes the reflector. It will be clear, too, that each node is half a wavelength from the next. Thus it can be shown that at every moment, and not merely at the three indicated in the diagrams, the two sets neutralize each other at the nodes, that the nodes are always in the same places and half a wave length apart. Everywhere else, except at the nodes, there is action more or less energetic, but there is a per perpetual calm. But how can we tell where the nodes are? When we recollect that they are points at which no wave motion at all takes place, it is easy to see that we shall at those points get no spark in our detector. So what Hertz did was to set his oscillator going so that it threw waves upon a reflecting surface and then move his detector to and fro in the neighborhood until he found the nodes. Between the nodes, as will be seen by an inspection of the curves once more, there are other points at which the wave action will be twice as great as with the single wave, and so at those points the response of the detector would be especially energetic. This mutual action between an incident wave and a reflected wave is termed interference, and by it the wavelengths of all the ethereal waves have been measured. The plan used in the case of light waves, although the same in principle, is somewhat different because of the extreme shortness of the waves. So the experiments of Hertz not only showed that long electric waves existed, but that they were in all essentials similar to light, and their wavelengths were ascertained. On that basis has been built up modern wireless telegraphy. It may be interesting to mention at this point a very curious and in a sense pathetic incident. Professor Hughes, whose name is associated with certain well-known instruments for ordinary telegraphy, nine years before Hertz's discovery noticed that a microphone was affected by the action of an induction coil some distance away. He himself attached some importance to the matter, but he allowed himself to be dissuaded from following up the discovery by other scientists, more eminent than himself at the time, who thought that it was not a promising field for investigation. But for the influence of these friends he would possibly be the hero of this story in place of Hertz. Professor Sylvanus Thompson 
has said that he too noticed the sparks produced at a distance when a Leyden jar was discharged, but he makes no claim to precedence over Hertz, since, seeing the phenomenon, he did not perceive its real meaning, while Hertz, though a little later in time, realized the profound significance of it. Hertz himself, in the account of his experiments, is generous enough to, to assert that, had he not discovered the waves when he did, he is quite certain that Sir Oliver Lodge would have done so. Before proceeding to describe the principal apparatus used in the wireless station, I should like to devote a little space to the explanation of a term which will come up again and again, and which represents that which is responsible to in the main for the marvelous advances which the art of sending wireless messages has achieved in the last few years. I refer to resonance. It will be a great help if the reader will try for himself a simple, inexpensive little experiment. Stretch a string horizontally across a room, and onto it tie two other strings, so they hang down vertically a little distance apart. To the ends of the two strings tie some small objects. A cotton reel on each will answer admirably. They will thus form two pendulums, and to commence with, they should be just the same length. Having rigged all this up, give one pendulum a good swing. It will impart motion of a to-and-fro variety to the supporting string, which in its turn will pass that motion on to the other pendulum. In a very short time, then, the second pendulum will be vibrating like the first. Indeed, the whole motion of the first will shortly become transferred to the second, so that the second will be swinging and the first still. Then the second will retransfer its energy back to the first, and so they will go on until the original energy given to the first pendulum is exhausted. The point to be observed is the quickness with which one pendulum responds to the impulses given it by the other and the ease with which the energy of the one passes to the other. Now reduce the length of one pendulum. On setting the first in motion, a certain irregular spasmodic action is to be observed in the second, but it is very different from the wholehearted response in the previous instance. In the former case, the second one responded naturally and readily to the first, now its response is reluctant to in the extreme. It moves somewhat because it is forced to, but it is apparently unwilling. Energy has to be impressed upon it. There is no readiness because there is no sympathy between them. That sympathy between the two equal pendulums is resonance. The same occurs between two violin or piano strings when they are in tune. The explanation is that a pendulum has a certain natural frequency which depends upon its length. Another pendulum of the same length, arranged as just described, 
therefore imparts impulses to it at just the frequency which is natural to it. Consequently, the effect is a cumulative one, and it responds quickly. Impulses at any other frequency tend more or less to neutralize each other. In the same way, a string of certain length and a certain tension has a frequency peculiarly its own, and it will respond to another similar string because the other gives its impulses at its own natural frequency. It is on record that an engine in a factory happened to run at precisely the same speed as the natural frequency of the building, with the result that after a little time the structure shook so much that it collapsed. Now electrical circuits in which currents oscillate have a natural frequency of their own. That frequency depends upon the two electrical properties of the circuit, capacity and inductance, and if you want to set up an electrical oscillation in any circuit, you can best do it by giving it impulses at intervals which agree with its natural frequency. Sir Oliver Lodge seems to have been the first to appreciate fully the effects of resonance in wireless telegraphy. It is strange that in England the work of this eminent man in wireless matters is not more fully recognized. When wireless telegraphy reached the point at which the public became interested, Marconi was just coming to the front, and so, forever, will his name be foremost in the public estimation. Indeed, more than foremost, for in the minds of many he monopolizes the credit for this invention. Many people are under the impression that he is the one and only, or at any rate the original, inventor of wireless telegraphy. Now Marconi has done exceedingly valuable work in this field. Moreover, he has been the means of placing the affair on a good commercial footing. By all the same, he is by no means the original or only inventor. While admitting that he is a remarkable man who has done wonders, it is only common justice to refer to the others whose contributions to the solution of the problem are possibly of equal value, and of these few can compare with Sir Oliver Lodge. End of section 12 Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.